Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, Law is Rising. I am Sabertooth, and with me is Kizu. I'm a professional NFT collector, and Kizu is a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So if you're a creator or collector of NFTs, or you want to be, jump in. The water is warm. Today, we have a very special guest, Eric Paul Rhodes, otherwise known as Second Realm. He is an award-winning artist, entrepreneur, startup advisor, NFT artist, trash art historian. He has his own podcast, Outer Realms. He has his newsletter, which is Inner Realms. He has his website and Twitter, which is Second Realm. I'm sure I'm forgetting something, and, and Eric will remind me during this conversation. But uh, Eric, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So look, tell us, how did you get into NFTs? Total happenstance, actually. I didn't know the NFT world existed. And I was going through a mental breakdown recovery and dealing with some mental health recovery issues at the time. And I was collecting, I was investing in cryptocurrency for quite a long time. One day, I just literally typed in crypto and art into Twitter. And I fell down this like super magical rabbit hole that I didn't know existed. And, you know, I was introduced to artists like X Copy and Coldy and uh, the trash artists like Rob Ness and Max Osiris and Jay DeLay and all these really fantastic people that I didn't know existed in the world. And I just never, I just never uh, looked back. I first came to know of your work via the kind of trash art phenomenon. And I think a lot of mm-hmm. people kind of observing the space have kind of Christianed you as a kind of trash art historian, as well as an artist. Did you embrace that role from the get-go? I'm, I'm part of the trash art movement. So I'm a trash artist. I just happened to document it after the fact, like after a year or so after the the movement had existed because I saw that some of the narrative was being shifted. There wasn't any central location where we could teach people about the movement. And the whole idea behind the article that I wrote, like a short intro to trash art, was just to simply give people a high, like a 5,000 foot overview and then give them other resources and people and things that they could go look at. But I wasn't the first person to document the movement. It was Darren Klein, you know, DK. Mm -hmm. So he was one of the first people to write an article for, I think it was Cointelegraph. Mm -hmm. And it was about Rob Ness. And like that existed, but what didn't exist, that sort of introduced people to why trash art existed or what what the current issues in trash art were and why why we were fighting against the establishment or the quote-unquote you know the nft establishment i felt like we needed as a movement something to point people to when they ask us where did trash art come from why should we care right like the why should we care was the the piece that i really wanted to be conscious about having written And the other piece was for the article itself and being a historian of it, of the movement, I really wanted, didn't want it to come across as heavily biased because I am part of the trash art movement as one of the artists. 
but I wanted the article itself to be a, a source of information rather than a source of editorialized content. For the people who are not that familiar with the trash art movement, maybe you could just give a summary of, I guess, you know, how it started, where it began, and where do you think it is, I guess, right now? Give everyone a 10,000-foot summary of, of the piece. The name trash art was originally used as a derogatory comment by Wales and by some of the leadership establishment. I wouldn't say leadership establishment. Let's just say Wales. It was used by Wales, uh, super rare at the time. It was early, I guess, early 2000. And they were annoyed with artists like Rob Ness who were using appropriation art on their platform. And what was happening was these whales were trying to decide, specifically it was Whale Shark and some of their leadership. They were trying to determine who in this, what was supposed to be an open and copyright ideal, decentralized kind of utopia. You know, got to remember, it's, we're talking early 2020. So a lot of what's what's going on today with the corporations coming in and the influencers, they didn't, they weren't in the space. So the utopia, utopian ideal still for a decentralized sort of world, I guess, uh, still existed for most. And so we, I think we had incorrectly, we, I had incorrectly assumed that a platform that claimed to be decentralized would in fact not be gatekeeping, would in fact be welcoming and opening itself to artists uh, of all kinds. And what was actually happening on Super Rare at the time was a certain group of artists that didn't meet whatever these whales and maybe some of the leadership over at Super Rare thought should be digital art, should be crypto art, should be NFT art. It didn't meet that standard. And so they were trying to push people off the platform. And then the opportunity came when Rob Ness uh, appropriated a trash can from a Home Depot website and, you know, Photomash did enough of a remix on it that it wouldn't be considered any sort of copyright, you know, legally anyway, uh, in my non, my non-legal opinion. And Super Rare was of the opinion that it did. And it, and it was of that opinion or became of that opinion because their whales, their highest collectors, the people that they made money from, uh, not made money for, the, which would be the artists, but the people they made money from, which would be the collectors, really were pushing for the removal of Robness because the quality of art uh, and the time it took for Rob Ness to make that piece of art wasn't up to this fucking bullshit standard that they were setting. So they kicked Rob Ness off and that sort of, and they kicked Max Osiris off and they kicked Alex, I can't remember his name right now, off the platform all because these artists didn't meet some sort of stamp, you know, bullshit standard of art quality. And what happened there was other artists started to rally around them, uh, specifically many artists that weren't on the super rare platform. I happened to be on the platform at the time. Uh, many artists that weren't on the platform because there was still this gatekeeping that was going on. So it was really a, a combination of a few different elements that were happening. And I think it was Jimmy ETH who 
today uh, I'm very friendly with, and I would consider a friend, but then we were all really sort of arguing against each other. And he had called that particular style of art, this moshed, you know, glitch that they didn't want on the platform, trash art. And we had taken it at that point. After a very short period of time, we we reappropriated the name, just like the impressionists did. And we took the name Trash Art and just started calling us Trash Artists. And it stuck. And we ended up moving to Rarible. We ended up putting Rarible on the map. Many people know Rarible today. But back then, it wasn't even considered a healthy platform to be putting your art on. And we moved hundreds of people over there, uh, introduced it, introduced people to it, turned that platform from a platform that was known for basically a place for shilling fakes and art that would, I guess, legally be considered uh, illegal into a very viable place where other artists can come in and we can introduce them to the NFT space. Because I think OpenSea was the only open platform at the time, but the UI wasn't really that great back then. And Rarible really, at the time, set the standard pretty high for UI in terms of uh, quality for open platforms. And it just made it easier. We started onboarding tons of people. It was so much fun. So where would you say the movement is you know, today in August, 2021, um, because sort of one year plus has passed in sort of NFT years, which is, you know, a few decades in sort of <laughs> other time. And, you know, the, the amount of platforms and even the policies of, of the different platforms have, um, have changed. Uh, I mean, just last week we had a, yep. we got a DMCA on OpenSea. So I don't know if many people are calling sort of OpenSea an open platform anymore, just because, you know, they're, they're sort of complying with all the DMCAs. That's, sort of happening on the on the platform um but where do you see that movement you know today the thing that i loved and still love about the trash art movement was there was no central authority um there was there isn't any specific agenda the only ethos that i think was there in the beginning was this ideal of of openness and decentralization and that meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people some people were super, some artists were super copy left. I tend to fall into that category. Others still want copyright protections for their art, but want to do it on open platforms without gatekeeping. And so like, those are just two examples of the kinds of people that were involved in the movement. So that, that means it evolved, right? It, and it continues to evolve. I think the, the core ideal of and the core ethos of limiting gatekeeping has permeated the space and the NFT world beyond what trash artists were fighting for at the time. And I think it was partly because or heavily because of the fact that the trash artist moved back, you know, pushed back and had this meme, this the meme of the trash can to sort of drive people's attention to why, to what, what trash art is. So today I think of these things, I think trash art has evolved into three different areas. It's evolved into the movement. Um, so the idea of decentralization, uh, the ethos of openness and onboarding as many people as possible. 
And then it's the meme. The meme itself is sort of taken on a life of its own. All kinds of people are creating trash cans and trash art that can either a be part of the the trash art movement and the ethos or just be part of like the meme aspect of it. And then there's the aesthetic. A lot of people today are experimenting and playing with the photo moshed glitch appropriation art style of creating art in the NFT space. And I think that was heavily influenced by the trash art. Now, none of these things like the the trash cans, the idea of decentralization, all of these things existed before trash art. It just, I think what happened is trash art was a catalyst for the expansion of all three of these things. Um, and it all started with the initial ethos and then has grown into these three separate areas of the movement, the meme and the aesthetic. And I'm wondering if, you know, looking back in five, 10 years, whether this is going to be an adequate term to really, it seems like there are so many more issues at stake and it's spun out of this one trash can. <laughs> I think the best way to sort of describe the impact of trash art is to look through the lens of art history and what trash art was railing against and really pushing back on the ideals of gatekeeping and things like that and, and being told no what you're making isn't art um, are some of the same things that the Dadaists and earlier before that the Impressionists were were also fighting against. So when we look at Impressionism, right, we don't, I think, historically look at it and say, well, they were arguing for gatekeeping. They were, and they began to hold their own exhibitions and build their own community. But that only lasted for a very short period of time in terms of when these artists were together. They were only together for a year, year and a half. Mm. Uh, and look And look at, you know, their impact today, right? There's soup, there's a lot of historical significance to the people that were in the Impressionist movement, Monet, Manet, Degas, oh. but very people talk about why we call them Impressionists. Um, it was a derogatory term used by a critic mm -hmm. that they then appropriated, right? A few people talk about why these people came together, what they were rattling against, because you know, they've become so accepted in history, in art history, uh, that we don't think about the fact that they were outcasts on the outskirts of, of the salon world. I think the same thing is happening and going to happen to trash artists and trash art. It'll be known for the meme, you know, memes and memetics. It's strong and captures people's attention, mm -hmm. but their impact in the art world as somebody who studied a little bit of art history in, in college, you could begin to really appreciate what they were going through and trying to fight for. I see a real, a real connection there, even between like the Dadaists and Surrealists, right? People look at the art itself and they're like, wow, this is beautiful. This it's about the aesthetic, right? But they rarely discuss unless you're in art school, the historical implications of why these movements came about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's going to happen over time to trash art. But, and this is the big but, but their impact and the impact of trash art is go, I 100,000 million percent believe 
we are historically, most people are going to talk about the mimetics, but in the art history books, it will be mentioned in the same way that we talk about Impressionists and Dadaism and Surrealism, how the movement came about. And I think it, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the history of it was to make sure that that existed because we see how once you get through the acceptance phase, which we are clearly are at in terms of the aesthetic of trash art. Like if you look at super rare today, there's fucking trash art and glitch art all over it. And nobody's saying anything aesthetically anyway. Uh, it was at the time it, it was taboo to be that. Eric, I want to talk about the series that you did called Doxing Myself, Trust This Piece of Trash Art Truth. Yes, right? yeah. Because I found that really interesting because you came into the space pseudonymously, right? Second realm. And then, no, anonymously. Uh, anonymously, okay. And then at some point you decided to, yeah, to basically self, self-dox and you did it for an NFT. And, you know, a lot of people don't really go through that experience. Oh, don't go through that experience willingly, right? Mm-hmm. Just tell me about like, how did you make that decision to, to self-docs? I express myself through art. And at the time I was expressing myself through NFT art. So that just seemed like a logical place to, to do that. Um, as I didn't really think anything else beyond that. The reason I switched from being anonymous to pseudonymous and doxing myself was it was a personal one. It was more about is more about not pretending to be anyone anymore. Like I have nothing against anonymous artists or people who want to have multiple identities in the space, but as somebody who suffers from anxiety and depression and uh, ADHD and a whole bunch of other, you know, psychological ailments, the idea that I would have to like, quote unquote, pretend to be a persona, an anonymous persona became overwhelming. I really just wanted to be myself. And the best way to be myself is to put myself out there. And actually, since doing that, the space opened up to me even more. And at the time, there weren't a lot of artists who were willingly like doxing themselves. Even today, even those that aren't anonymous or those that are pseudonymous don't show their face on screen or don't want to talk about their personal life. Uh, that's just not me. I, I found the world, this, this art world that we're in now and the NFT space, it opened up for me even more when I opened up to it. Um, so that was, and I, I think I instinctively and intuitively knew that that was going to happen for me because I like to live myself uh, openly as much as possible in terms of how, you know, how I express myself through my art, because my art is very personal. And that was, that's the other piece here. You know, how could I share personal art about my personal experience uh, and yet be anonymous that, that didn't really like work for me. And so for me to, to dox myself was really about like freeing myself to continue to explore in the space. I love that I have a little bit of time in the space as an anonymous person, but it's been so much better to to be a pseudonymous and even as me, Eric, in the space more than anything else. Do you think that moving forward, this 
transparency or non-transparency of the artist's identity is going to shape. Um, and I'm yeah. thinking specifically of how in, in traditionally for, for artists that make it big, um, I think their biography and their their life becomes a very big part of the work. I think, you know, collectors are interested to know. I think some artists like like Andy Warhol live their life as performance art. So what we know about them is is what they wanted us to know about them. Salvador Dali was the same way. You know, Salvador Dali wrote, you know, erotic cookbooks. He wrote a false book about his entire life. I don't really see a difference between today's artists and what we're doing in artists throughout history, except for the anonymity aspect. And I think what anonymity allows is for people to control a narrative about what their what the art is. So I'm specifically thinking about like a Marat pack, somebody I don't respect as an artist or a designer in the space. And I'll, I'll own that. Many people love his art and maybe he'll go down historically as one of, you know, the most financially successful in the space. And I say he'll it's it's I believe it's actually a team of people, men, women. I don't know. The difference today is information is so much more. A difference today is that information about people is so much more accessible because of what we put online. So there's a performance aspect to mm. to anonymity that I think is part of the art itself. So a, a Marat pack is a, you know, pack is a perfect example. They don't consider themselves artists. Other people call them artists. They consider themselves designers, but their anonymity is part of the performance of the art itself. So I think it adds to it in that regard. X copy, right? His pseudonymy as X copy adds to the art itself, adds a performance quality. It's almost like a character for X copy, isn't it? Mm. Right. It's heavily driven by, by the aesthetic and the aesthetic is tied to the name and rare. I've never seen X copy move beyond that aesthetic for X copy. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, the pseudonymy, I'm pretty sure he's pseudonymous, but many people I think think he's an anonymous artist that adds to the quality of the art itself because it's part of the performance, mm -hmm. I think. And I, I think in some cases it's intentional, like Marat Pack. And then I think in some cases it's unintentional, but becomes part of the lore, like an X copy. Mm -hmm. Great point. So, I, yeah, I don't think we're losing anything. In, th in fact, I think we're gaining a new way to create art that's immersive. Uh, the technology itself allows for anonymity right? Or, or a certain level of anonymity. I think that's unique in time and history of creating art, but maybe not so unique, right? Because back in the day before there were, and when I mean back in the day, I'm talking like, let's say like 1500s or whatever, you were presenting yourself as a specific character, right? So let's talk, we could talk about we could talk about Da Vinci, right? Da Vinci historically has been presented as somebody who was like, could draw, create war machines, was, you know, an anatomy expert and all this kind of things. And I think that that was part of his performance was making sure that people thought of him that way. But if we truly look at it, he was probably just really excellent at, recording 
other people's inventions down on paper. And then he get, you know, historically, he then gets credit for them, right? Cool. Eric, Visa yesterday bought a CryptoPunk yeah. and, you know, you're, you are one of the artists that have done you know, significant work in the collectible space as well as the, the art space. And uh, have. You, you have done a punk homage project. You know, what, what do you think of sort of the current sort of collectible mania and, and, and how do you think that will affect the NFT art you know, market? And, and talk about your experiences in, in, in your sort of punk collectibles project. What I love about the, the collectible as the collective, the 10K and the PFP projects what I love about it is it's bringing so much interest in the space. Crypto art, and then later what we what most people started calling NFT art, proved conceptually at scale that NFTs could be successful. And then it evolved into the more consumerist version of, of collectability, right? You have Top Shots, which does its own thing. And before that, you, had, you were influenced by CryptoPunks, but CryptoPunks... At the time when they were launched, I mean, I hate to say it like this, but it was kind of a novelty, you know, like 10,000 collectibles. Who would have ever thought? Obviously, people did uh, that 10,000 collectibles would be more valuable than an artist who maybe makes 200 pieces over a year and maybe 50,000 lifetime, right? Look at Picasso. I think he made like 50,000 pieces over his lifetime. Again, what I love about the the evolution of the space is you go from this collectible and then people are like, oh, it's novelty. It's a novel idea uh, into art, NFT art and crypto art, which at scale platforms are built to sustain the economy of the NFT artist and the crypto art space. And it proves at scale that this can work. And then we start to see the growth of the crypto punk. You know, and what I love about CryptoPunks is they basically became, you know, decentralized social media, right? They were a way to show clout by putting an image in your profile picture. It became about clout and today it is about clout to own a CryptoPunk. It is about clout to own an ape. I I, I have no problem with that, but, you know, um, you could also buy clout by just coming in. And so that's what Visa has done was instantly buy credibility. Like they understand quote unquote, and it's a smart move brand wise. And I love that for, for products. I love it for, I love it for people who are influencers and have the money and are coming into the space. I think it's really great. I don't have any issues with any of that. Unfortunately, what's happening is art is being sort of pushed, pushed to the outskirts a little bit. And that's unfortunate. Um, we're going to see blue chip artists always sustain and have uh, an audience, but high end art always uh, takes longer to move than a 10K project. And that's because the audience is different. When you're looking at 10K projects, you're probably looking at people who are more interested in ROI investments, today's version of 10K projects, anyway. ROI investments and flipping and utility. And that's going to be the next stage for artists who need to be successful and who I believe should be success, could be successful in this space are going to have to begin to think about the utility of their, their digital art life and 
for me, that that's nothing more than, you know, trying to provide an experience for your collectors. It doesn't have to be as mechanical as some of these 10K projects, but I love, I love the 10K project. I especially am a big fan of the projects that merge three things. Um, I think those that are going to be successful in the next stage are the projects that merge collectability, you know, like if you were a sports card collector or anything that you collected, uh, there's a collectability aspect, but then there is a metaverse utility and uh, IRL utility. The the next innovations are going to happen in that space, the merger between those three, the seamless merger between those three. And then your sort of unofficial punks project. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Talk about that. Like, how did you launch it? What's been your experience? I wanted to participate in the in the CryptoPunks excitement, but I had been priced out of it because I had shunned it. Right? Because I even 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 as I as I told you before, you could probably hear. You know, to me, it was a novelty. Uh, I didn't see. The historical significance when I, I passed up so many, op- I could have had hundreds of um, CryptoPunks had I just bought them at the right time. And I kept passing them up because I never saw their significance. Uh, I never saw their utility from a, a clout. I never saw their utility from a clout perspective. You know, to me, it was just like 10,000 collectibles. Okay, time for me to move on. And part of that is I was creating my own stuff. So for me, it was more important to focus on my own art. So when crypto punks were really blowing up, it was early, late December, then then early January and into February. Um, there were some record deals, record sales. I think there was a $7 million sale. And so a lot of people were talking about and be, participating in the experience. And so I wanted to be a part of it somehow. But I'm an artist, so I just decided, and I'm an appropriation artist. So I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to make my own. And I was inspired by Money Alada. And Money Alada had made his own. And I was like, damn, that's awesome. Let me make mine. And it was, you know, five minutes worth of work. I tweeted it, and it just sort of blew up. People were asking me to make, make versions of them. So I do what I always do, which is have a marketing perspective. So I was like, well, if this blows up, I should probably make a collection out of it. And I started branding it as unofficial punks. And it turned into a collection of a hundred, a hundred pieces. It was only, it was actually originally going to be 256 pieces, but it just became, it started becoming more about trying to like, at one point I found myself trying to make things that other people wanted to buy. And I was like, that's not how I live in this space. You know, that's that's how 10K projects are today. They make things that people are interested in and will buy and flip. But when I was making the unofficial punks, it was an expression and a way to and an homage to these things that I had totally dismissed. And it was a way for other people who didn't have an opportunity to participate in the original collections of these to then sort of like, you know, have their own. But what happened was really interesting and I didn't know it, but it sort of gave people permission to then begin making their own. And so a huge community grew up out of it. And the unofficial, I started like, like kind of ironically, like certifying 
you know, like on Twitter, I'd be like, oh, you're a certified unofficial punk. You're a certified, and people loved it. And then people started asking me for like official, quote, like official certifications. And I'm like, that's not how this was supposed to, it was all in just good fun. And so I, I took that opportunity to create a community and, and bring people together around just like this punk verse. And what, what happened there is nuts because a hun- we created 156 subgenres and over 7,000. And this is fun. This is a fun, a fun thing that most people don't talk about. We've only as unofficial punks and certified unofficial punks, we've only created 7,000 punks total. That's still 3,000 less than the entire collection of, of the crypto punks. And we did it with 156 subgenres. Yet people were talking about how we were flooding the market at the time. Today, it's become more acceptable. You're seeing fast food punks. You're seeing COVID punks. You're seeing an entire alt punk movement. But it was the unofficial punks that uh, started it. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think just the other day I saw Taliban punks as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's becoming a thing. Oh, yeah, it's been, it's been a thing. Uh, unfortunately, some people don't have the... Um, like you could see that some things are clear cash grabs, right? Even in the alt punk, even in the alt punk world, there are some people who are just going after it for the money. And that's part of being in this business. You know, we talked about how there's this performative aspect of being an artist in, in this space in, yes. you know, in 2021. So do you think that, you know, having a, a practice as wide ranging as yours uh, has been overall beneficial to your success it seems like as you pointed out today there's a lot more freedom to be as wide-ranging as omnivorous as shape-shifting as as the as the situation might demand or dictate as humans we like to drill things down into something that's understandable and so there's a little bit of confirmation bias when we talk about artists and styles. And so we'll talk about, Oh, there are some people out there that say develop your own signature style. That's how successful artists do it. Yes. There are some artists that develop a signature style and are successful. And yes, alternatively, there are also some artists that don't have a signature style and are successful, but what's a better narrative right? The better narrative is, well, he's successful or she's successful because of the thing we can see, right? They'll point to, I often say, my, my, my argument then would go to, well, look at Andy Warhol. And then somebody will inevitably say, yes, but what collectors really want is his screen, his silk screens. And I'm like, yes, I get that. But he was not successful just because of his silk screens. He was successful because of all the things he did. His mentorship of Basquiat, his his sculpture, his appropriation art. Because they'll be like, oh, his silk screens. And I'll just be like, what about his, you know, Campbell Soup Can sculptures? Do you not fucking think about that? Like, do not, you know? And another one is is Salvador Dali, right? Everybody's Everybody knows him for his calendars <laughs> or his posters, right? Uh, most people don't know that he did set design. Uh, he wrote books. Um, he was the consummate marketer. Always, uh, you know, he showed up and he had a horse show up at a, as an event in 
in replace of him or when he filled an entire you know car with cauliflower and he showed up at, a, at an art you know art show like there are aspects to an artist's career and what makes them uh successful that get brushed under the rug uh in favor of narrative for me is i don't think about having a specific aesthetic that meets a certain standard that's not how my mind works it's never going to work like that i have adhd so i need jumping from various topics um, and various styles and various aesthetics and various various performances if you will is part of me it's part of who i am the through thread for me though is personal experience so my through thread is almost always my art is either a reaction to my past or a reaction to the experience of the world in which I'm currently living in. So like trash art, is a, it was a reaction to the world I was living in at the moment. Creating the unofficial punks was a reaction to the world I was living in the moment. My political art with Trump was a reaction of the world I was living in the moment. But then you have the works like, um, like my Brutalist Mannequins. Those were about my mental health experience even the synthesis uh, avatars were a merger of all of it, all of my experience in the NFT space and my life up until that point. So the through thread is me and my experience. I think the same can be said for Kevin Abosh, right? Uh, maybe his through thread is the use of technology to express ideas, but he doesn't have a single aesthetic, right? There's Rob Ness doesn't have a single aesthetic. His through thread is, you know, his whole performance aspect of, of be, now it's be, about being, it's about trash art, but it's, it was, it's, it's a lot about expression. Um, so, you know, here in this space, in the NFT space, I just named two artists that visually don't have a specific aesthetic, but then I can name two more that do, Xcopy and Victor. Ferocious. So I think that there's a misconception that artists need to have a single aesthetic to be successful. I think that makes sense for narratives and it makes sense for good storytelling, but it's patently just fucking false. Eric, it's been great having you on the show. What a great chat. Look, uh, I'd love to have you come back on sometime and, uh, and talk more because we didn't even get to your view of Merit Pack and I sort of resisted the urge to kind of dig down that hole because I know we're going like another hour. It's great having you on and, uh, and thank you. And uh, thank everyone for joining us on this episode of Sport is Rising. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floyd's Rising. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. If you want to reach out to us, just send us a DM. 